The word of God says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray again. Oh, Father, we come before you and ask that you would help us. We, we pray for your spirit to open our eyes to these glorious truths. I pray that not a one would leave here blind to these realities. I pray for those who came here this morning with no faith in Christ. Oh, Lord, mercy, show your mercy on them. Help them to see who Christ is and what he has accomplished. I pray that you'd move in their hearts so they'd throw down their idols and trust in the Son of God. I pray for those who come here this morning weak in their faith. Father, by your Spirit, move in them so that they might take a good, hard look at the cross and be strengthened with hope, strengthened in the confidence of your grace, strengthened with life. And Lord, I pray for those who come here supposedly strong, who feel strong. I pray that you'd help them to take a good, long look at the cross. You, you, you have borne our weaknesses. You have died on the cross for us. You're the only reason why we have any standing. Would you do your gracious work of killing self-righteousness in our hearts so that our only banner our only boast is Jesus Christ, 
And Lord, we thank you collectively for the grace and the mercy that you have shown us and for the judgment that you have demonstrated in Christ. So Father, for the next 35 minutes, move in our hearts. Let us not be dull of hearing. Let us not be distracted. I pray for your help. I pray that you'd help me to handle your word well. I pray for physical strength because you know I need that right now. Help me right now to preach this well. And may the gospel, may, may the treasure of our heart be Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. One night around 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat alone in a garden. He wasn't really alone. He, his disciples were supposed to be keeping watch a good ways off, but he knew, Jesus knew, that they were asleep and they kept falling asleep. So Jesus was alone and he was praying. He also knew that the religious leaders with armed guards were on their way to that very garden and Jesus knew why they were coming. He had been praying with such intensity that Luke tells us that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was praying this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. Jesus' agony had its roots in what he was about to do. People debate whether it was the spiritual destitution he was about to take on, the estrangement from the Father, or whether it was the physical pain, or whether it was just the weight of bearing the sin of many that drove him to pray this way. My sense was that it was all of it together. So he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There are a lot of wills in that prayer, right? If you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours, your will be done. And what Jesus wanted most was that the will of his heavenly father would be carried out in its fullness. Now we know what the will of the father was for Jesus that night. We know, we could read ahead. We know what the will was. Jesus would be arrested by that mob. He would go willingly, Willingly, he had the power to stop it at any moment, but he, he'd go willingly. He'd be arrested. He'd, 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 he'd submit himself to their fake trials, their scorn, their abuse, physical beating. The Son of God would countenance people like people, like he is the creator and he countenanced people striking him and pulling his beard out, mocking him, putting a crown of thorns on him, and crucifying him. And the reason why he did that, when he could have stopped it all with just a word, is because of his determination that the will of the Father be done. What we're going to do today with Isaiah 53, 3-12, is to ask and answer the question, why? was the will of the Father to crush the Son? The answer is where every session of the conference that we've been doing here has pointed this week, this weekend. 
The answer is the judgment and the mercy of God. I don't know if you've been a part. I know many of you were, many of you weren't, perhaps. I have loved this conference. I have loved hearing about the judgment and mercy of God in the Old Testament. I have loved hearing about the judgment and mercy of God in the New and how they interrelate. And I loved hearing about the judgment of God at the end of the age when Christ comes again. And this morning during Sunday school hour, it was so good to think together how we can apply these truths as Christians as we do life together, like in the church, how do we, how do we judge rightly and not sinfully judge? How do we show mercy? I don't know about you, but it's been good for my soul. I hope that you've grown through it. I, I know I have. All of it, friends, points to the reality that we today, right now, are wrestling with. The judgment and mercy of God in Christ. In other words, the will of the Father to crush the Son is at the heart of all the judgment and mercy of God that we see in the Bible. It all points to this. So we'll take a few moments together in kind of a devotional way and meditate together on Isaiah 53, 3 through 12. And our aim will be to answer that question. Why is it the will of the Father to crush the Son? And the answer is precious news for us. And it ought to strengthen our faith in Jesus. And it should lead us to an increased sense of humility before God. Killing our self-righteousness and blowing up gratitude in our hearts to God for his mercy and his kindness towards us. Indeed, I think it should lead us to worship. Isaiah 53, as many theologians have said, is more than just a prophecy. It, it is gospel. It is a gospel. Lots of writers say it, it belongs right next to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The fifth gospel. One writer I read this week said why that is so. He wrote, Nowhere in the Old Testament does the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ shine as brightly as it does in Isaiah 53. And this was written several hundred years before Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. God revealed to the prophet Isaiah the will of the Father concerning the Son of God and even why he wills the way that he wills. So do this for our organization this morning. Imagine with me that this chapter is a, a woven basket with two colors. A dark color, very dark color, and then red. Those are the two parts of our answer to the question, why was it the will of the Father to crush the Son? And like any good basket, they're, they're woven tightly together. These two parts of the reason are woven tightly together. So just imagine it's like a basket and we're gonna try to highlight both of those colors that we see in this two-color basket. The verses go back and forth from dark to red, red to dark. And so let's start with the dark, shall we? It's mentioned many times and in many ways. There are many different ways to talk about sinfulness in Isaiah 53. It's interesting. We tend to favor certain ways of talking about sin. There's, there's actually a debate right now in evangelical circles about how appropriate the word, the term brokenness is when it comes to sin. People debate these things on blogs and stuff. To some, it seems to soften the reality of sin, right? Brokenness doesn't sound as hard and it makes it, seem like something has happened to us, not something we've done. 
Personally, I'm fine with the term, though I don't think it stands all by itself. I think we need to say more than brokenness about sin. I think it's a good term because it describes what sin has done in us and in this world. Our sin breaks us. And sin in this world has made our world broken. We live in a broken world and it's broken because of sin. One reason, one reason. Many problems in this world, many issues, many forms of abuse and hardship and oppression and suffering, and it all comes down to sin. But if you don't like the term brokenness, I'm okay with that. I, I, can, I can be okay with you. Uh, Isaiah supplies us with several more ways we can talk about our sin. So let's just go through those. I mean, right away in verses three and four, he uses two words, sorrow and grief. In verse three, it says that the suffering servant, whom we know is Jesus, I showed you that last week as I was preaching from Matthew eight seventeen, that this, you know, that Matthew eight seventeen, you could note it or go look it up. Um, it ties the knot on this point. The suffering servant is Jesus. But verse three says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now that does not mean that he was melancholy or even just that he had a difficult life. The next verse makes us, helps us to make sense of this. Why Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse four says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, not owning, owing to his own sorrows or his own grief, but because he took our sorrows and he carried our griefs. Those are the two ways Isaiah, that's two of the ways that Isaiah talks about sin, sorrow, and grief. And they're really practical words, right? I mean, isn't that practical if you think about it? If you think about the nature of sin, if you, if you have lived long enough, and honestly, you don't have to have lived all that long to know this, you know that sin brings sorrow and it brings grief. You know that. If you have lived any amount of time and dabbled with sin, you know that it brings sorrow and grief. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they're so clever, right? They're so clever in their tempting of us. When we're tempted to sin, we believe that that sin will bring about happiness and joy. That's the big hoax of sin, the big lie of sin. It promises fulfillment and warmth and satisfaction and significance and lasting pleasure and joy and delivers only sorrow and grief. Eventually, all sin leads to sorrow. Eventually, you might not believe that now. I hope you do. I hope that we would believe that in the moment of temptation. Sin is luring us with seductive speech, right? Like that's, that's how the Proverbs describes it. It's luring to us. Mike, this will be sweet to your tongue. Friends, it won't. It will be sorrow and it will be grief. Another way that Isaiah talks about sin is with the word transgression. Verse five says, he was pierced for our transgression. That, that word, especially in English, but even in the Hebrew, expresses a, a, a crossing or a, a trespassing of, of right boundaries. Like a criminal offense, you cross a boundary into forbidden behavior like hurting someone or stealing from someone or taking advantage of a weak person or our, our sins or transgressions, they cross a boundary. Specifically, they cross the, the big boundary of the law of God. We transgress his law. 
we trespass against him. And then Isaiah calls our sin iniquities. You can see that in verse 5, 6, and 11. That seems to be just another way to characterize sin. It means wicked acts, gross injustice, immoral behavior. Does have kind of a connotation of the heart, not just the actions. Verse 10 calls the sinful state of man guilt. And we know what that word means. We use it in our courts. If a man is guilty, it means that he really did it. It means that he is blameworthy. It means that he is genuinely deserving of punishment. The reality of our sin has resulted in our unquestioned guilt. You might plead innocent. Lots of, lots of guilty people plead innocent. We don't, even, we don't even think, oh, he pled innocent. That means he didn't do it. You might plead innocent, but everyone knows it. You know it deep in your heart. You're guilty. I'm guilty. And of course, Isaiah uses the old-fashioned word sin to describe, well, sin. (laughs) Verse 12 says, he bore the sin of many. So if you don't like the word brokenness, fine. Isaiah has a few that you could borrow. Sorrow, grief, Illness, disease, we talked about those last week. They're here. You have to know a little bit about the Hebrew to know why they're here, but they're here. Transgressions, iniquities, guilt, sin. That's how Isaiah frames the context of Isaiah 53, the fifth gospel. This is the dark weave that's woven through this basket that we're holding today. Of course, Isaiah uses a helpful illustration of his own, a really good one. Look with me at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I I love that that even rhymes in English. He's using an illustration that everyone in the society of his day, and I think most of us in this part of the U.S. would understand, at least to some level. Even I understand this, and I'm not in agriculture in any way. Like sheep that are notorious for going where they shouldn't go, to places the shepherd does not want them to go, to places that would not be helpful to the sheep or safe for the sheep. We do our own thing. I was, I was working on this yesterday morning. Uh, I texted a few guys who know about how dumb sheep are because they have them. And I asked them if they could give me a few examples. One of them shared me, with me that, uh, that his sheep, he has one sheep that will every single day stick its head through a fence and get stuck. Like every day. Every day, it sticks its head in the fence and gets stuck. And did it do it today? Where are you guys? It did today. And my assumption is that if it stayed there, it would die, right? And it won't back up. It just keeps pushing forward. Not a smart sheep. Goes its own way right into the fence. And then somebody else sent me this video, which I'm actually going to show. First time in 10 years of preaching here, I'm going to show you a video. And I hope it's worthy of, of that marker. But look how dumb sheep are. Amen, let's pray. (laughs) Instead of going where God wants us to go, where we will flourish, where we will have joy and life, the pleasure of God, we go and we want to go stupidly to places that make us languish not flourish. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. I think it's helpful comparing our sinful tendencies to sheep that do really dumb things, that imperil themselves, lead to their own suffering, lead to their own death sometimes, and harm other people. But note with me something else about this illustration. Isaiah is not saying that some of us are like dumb sheep. Repeated twice for emphasis. Isaiah proclaims that all of us are like that. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. Feel that, friends. The comprehensiveness of it. You know, Romans 1 through 3, if you've studied that passage, it makes the case for human sinfulness in a logical, comprehensive, and also universal way. In this poem or song, Isaiah has done it as well. And it's interwoven in the message of Isaiah 53. All of us have sorrows. All of us have griefs. All of us have illnesses and diseases. All of us have committed transgressions. All of us have iniquity. All of us are guilty. All of us are sinners. You feeling that? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. That, that gross sinfulness of man is a crucial part of this basket of Isaiah 53. If ever there was a case for the judgment of God, it's right here. Some of you are studying the Pilgrim's Progress on Wednesday night. That's still going, right? Pilgrim's Progress? I don't know. Anyone studying that? Oh, come on. There's lots of people studying that. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I love that book. So it makes my heart happy that you guys are studying that book. I, I love that, you're, that they meet here on, on Wednesday nights and they study the book and the truths that, are, that Bunyan intended behind those, uh, the, the analogy, that novel. It's an amazing novel. If you haven't read it, you should. If you're aware of the book, though, then this image will make sense to you, especially in light of Isaiah 53. The burden on the back of the main character named Christian was real. It was not imagined. It was, it was not a burden that only one person carries. It's a burden that all we have on our backs. A burden that is full of sorrow and grief and transgression and iniquity and guilt and sin. That's a universal state of mankind. The burden is real, friend. And what's more? It's far too heavy for you to carry. This is not merely describing mankind, like in general. This is characterizing not just people in general. Don't just see this as like, yeah, mankind's bad. This describes you. This describes me. So let's keep that part, the, the dark weavings of this basket in mind as we continue to seek for the, the answer to our question, why was it the will of the Father to crush the Son? And to get there, we need to observe the, the red weaving of this basket. To answer our question, we have to see why the suffering servant is suffering. Why we call him the suffering servant. Isaiah tells us in many different ways. He tells us at least 13 times. In fact, by the way, I'm not being exhaustive with this with this. Prophecy. I'd, I'd need a few weeks for that. Maybe, maybe six months. 
I'm just skimming the surface here for you today. So there's, there's stones I'm leaving unturned. But there, here's 13 ways that he talks about this red weave. Verse four, he has borne our griefs. Also verse four, he has carried our sorrows. Verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And he was chastised for our peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Verse six, the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. Verse 11, his anguish satisfied the Lord and he makes many to be accounted as righteous and he bears their iniquities. Verse 12, he bore the sins of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. So why was God's answer to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that he must, he must go to the cross? He must suffer at the hands of sinful men. He must lay down his life. Why was it the will of the Lord, as it says in verse 10, to crush the son? It was because of the judgment and the mercy of God. One thing you can't do with Isaiah 53 that we've been doing all weekend, here and there, as we've studied different aspects of God's judgment and his mercy, you, you can't go line by line and separate like, okay, this is God's judgment and, and this is his mercy. You can do that in lots of places in the Old Testament. You can't do that in Isaiah 53. You can't say this is distinguished. This is his judgment. This is distinguished. This is his mercy. This is God showing you mercy. This is God showing you judgment. You can't do that in Isaiah 53. And you know why? The willful crushing of the Son of God is the ultimate display of God's judgment and mercy in Jesus Christ all at once. Every action is God judging the Son of God for sinners. And every action of Isaiah 53 is God showing mercy to sinners through Christ. Every bit of this is judgment. And every bit of it is mercy. Every line of Isaiah 53 is judgment and mercy of God and Christ. Christ is the object of God's judgment. And we, we, we are the objects of his mercy. I don't know how you have approached this conference and what your thoughts were coming in about the judgment and the mercy of God. Or maybe this is the only session you've caught. I know for a lot of you, it's the only session you've caught. However you have approached this conference or however you even approached this morning, this Sunday morning, I pray that you leave with joyful hearts because you know that God is a God of judgment and God is a God of mercy because you know that the two things come together in the cross of Christ. For our good for our joy, for our eternal happiness, for our life. Isaiah 53 is truly the gospel. Isaiah makes the case so powerfully that we are sinners before a holy God 
He makes the case equally powerfully that Jesus Christ has borne our sins and iniquities and transgressions and guilt and illness and disease. The basket is woven tightly together. If your faith, if your faith, if your hope and your confidence today is in Jesus Christ alone, Isaiah 53 offers you this blessed assurance. The judgment of God against you that you have rightly earned and that you justly deserve is forever satisfied in Jesus Christ. Because of God's judgment against the Son of God and because of his mercy towards you. Why was it the will of the Father to crush the Son? Because it was his loving will to save you. Is that not good news? Does that not make your heart want to embrace Christ? Doesn't it make your heart want to explode with faith and gratitude and joy for the love that God has for you? Through Jesus, there are a few things I think ought to result from knowing the truth of Isaiah 53. And the ones I have in mind are all captured, or the ones I'm thinking about mainly are captured in an old hymn, 18th century hymn written by Isaac Watts that I love dearly, one of my favorite hymns. So in closing, I'm going to read the lyrics of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I began this sermon by reading Isaiah 53. I'm going to end this sermon by, saying, by reading When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And I'll end it by just reading this and maybe sharing a few thoughts about it at the very end. Maybe if you'd like, you could close your eyes and just think about what this means for you. Watts wrote this. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor content on all, contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson like a robe spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then I am dead to all the globe and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What is the application of this precious truth that we encounter in Isaiah 53? In a few words, humility, faith, Gratitude, love, devotion, worship. In a sentence, Isaiah 53, when it is taken to heart by faith, results in making Jesus the supreme treasure of our lives. Our only hope and our only boast and the supreme passion and the ultimate direction of our lives. That's what it does. That's what the gospel does. 
And so my question for you today, and if you answer no, and you want to talk about it, I'll be lingering around. Other elders are here. Talk to somebody. But the question is this, has the truth of Isaiah 53 taken your heart? Father, we are so incredibly thankful for the truth of Isaiah 53 and for the work of Christ and for your good pleasure in crushing this son for your glory and for our good. Lord, ignite hearts with faith and gratitude and humility and devotion and worship We thank you that the cross is the ultimate demonstration of the judgment and the mercy of God. Christ is the object of your judgment and you have made us the object of your mercy. We praise you together in one accord and in Jesus' name, amen.